Just think for a second. The one that we just sang, crown him with many crowns. You just heard the choir lead us in that. He is the one who stoops down to speak to us by his word. Just to think about the fact that why would God give us his word? Because he loves us. That he's revealing himself. He's not just revealing information. He's actually revealing himself to us. He's inviting us to know him and to commune with him. He is the living Lord who's saying, come into my presence. Hear what I have to say and to speak to you. Let's pray and ask God. We believe he's speaking to us in his word. We turn to his word for the concrete truth of who God is, what he's all about, what he's revealed to us. Let's ask God to show us the meaning of it for our lives, to take it seriously as we approach him. Father, I'm just in awe of the fact that you have given us the gift of your word, and we recognize right now that we need your spirit to open our minds and our hearts, to make us teachable, to lead and counsel us into all the truth, and to show us the importance and the weight and the meaning and the implications of your word for our lives, both as individuals and as a church as well. So, Father, help us to hear, to listen. Give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. And you might be asking, why do we ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word? Well, it's because it is God's Word. We're doing it out of reverence. We're doing it because we respect and honor the very fact that He has spoken to us. So hear the Word of God from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 this morning. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And friends, this is the very word of the Lord given by the triune God of love out of love for his people. You may be seated. Mark began his narrative in chapter 1, verse 1, with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have been spending many months looking at, and this morning we are finishing, our study of the gospel of Mark, the account of the life, the death, and this morning, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been saying from the beginning that Mark's structure of his narrative is actually quite simple. He divides it into two halves. He began the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the first half, which is chapters 1 through 8, focus on who is Jesus? What is his personality like? How does he treat people? How does he relate to the world around him? And the second half, Mark 9 to 16, is basically look at what he came to do. And the answer, as we saw last week in the account of Jesus' crucifixion, was that he came to die. But, and here is where the story takes what for them, for the original hearers and readers of this document, was an unbelievably unexpected turn. 
And for us, we need to be reminded of just how history-changing this historical, this reality, this event truly was. Because death was not the final goal of Jesus. When we say he came to die, death did not have the final word over Jesus. And if we accept the truth of this message, if we embrace and submit to the truth of this message, friends, I can't think of better news than this. Death does not have the final word over us. See, death for Jesus was simply the means of accomplishing what was his ultimate goal, his ultimate mission. His purpose was the launching of the kingdom of God, the defeat of evil and the powers of darkness and the beginning of his rule, his reign, the reality that Jesus' kingship, which began on earth with the resurrection from the dead, the healing of the world. As Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he says, for to this end, and this end means purpose, goal, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And so Mark's is a narrative detailing how Jesus, who has always been Lord and King of the world, but how Jesus became King of the world and defeated the powers of darkness how the kingdom of darkness was defeated. As one writer put, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. And another writer said it should be affirmed with no ambivalence or ambiguity whatsoever. Ours is an Easter faith. What does this mean and what does this mean for us? Above all, it means in the battle of life and death, in the battle of good and evil, in the battle in which our eternity hangs, Jesus has won. The victory is assured. And if you are in Jesus, if you submit and embrace the truth of this message, do you know what this means? This means you have won. You have won because of somebody else's victory. That victory becomes yours. I'll illustrate it this week. I love Easter week. This is a great week. One, I love preaching the resurrection. It's a whole lot of fun. But do you want to know? Let me share another personal reason why I love this week. This is the start of baseball season. (laughs) Those of you who know me well know I'm a sports fanatic, and then I go off the deep end when it comes to baseball. So I love all sports, and I have to repent so often of my feelings towards baseball. But I love baseball, and I especially love... Listen carefully, but take no offense of this. I love the New York Yankees. Okay? I am a diehard New York Yankees fan. Now, I'm going to use my friend Shane in the back, though, as an illustration for this, just because I can see him so well running the sound booth. I want you to picture, now Shane, as much as I'm a diehard Yankees fan, he's a diehard Phillies fan, loves Philly, makes for interesting elders meetings, just to let, pray for us. Okay, But imagine if I said to him, start of baseball, I have good news for you, Shane. The Phillies have already won the World Series. Book it. Bank on it. It's done. They've won. What kind of joy do you think he'd have watching the game? Oh, they lost that one. No big deal. They win in October. Oh, so Jake Arrieta didn't have such a great start today. Doesn't matter. At the end, they're the ones with the victory parade. Christians, do you understand that in the battle of life 
versus death. You have won. If you are in Jesus, light has beaten darkness, good has beaten evil, you have won the world series of life. Why? Because Jesus Christ won it for you. And do you know the implications that that has for us? Can you imagine if we really began to embrace that message? The honesty that we could begin to live with? Relaxing, knowing, why in the world am I trying to justify myself all the time? You know, why am I defending myself? We could live with, we could relax. We could face life knowing that it's already been won by King Jesus, that he has us, that he loves us, that the judgment is already in. In a few minutes, in fact, you want me to hurry up through the sermon, because in a few minutes you're going to hear four men sing, it is finished, and it is breathtaking. That because Jesus said, it is finished, the judgment has been won, and he received it. Which means we ought to live with honesty and relaxing and freedom. I said in the first service, and I said it now, we should have gone out for the brunch and we should have had a toast of champagne to the resurrection of Jesus. We should have been toasting and celebrating. Now, we want to look this morning at Mark's account. And of course, you've got the gospel writers, you have four writers, and you have four different accounts, different perspectives. They're looking through their unique human lenses at the account of Jesus' resurrection. We're going to look this morning at Mark's, and we're going to learn two things. We're going to explore two topics, if you would, about the narrative of Jesus' resurrection. We want to see how we learn our own, I'll call it our own natural, cosmic slowness of heart. How cosmically resistant we are to change. And then we want to do that in order to marvel. And I pray, here's my prayer, I pray that Be simple. There's not so much information I want you to take out of this. My hope is that this is really a time of worship where we are filled with wonder and awestruck at the reality of Jesus' victory in the resurrection. I want much more worship and celebration. I want when I say he is risen for you to say, and I want you to say it with a little bit more gusto than that. Okay, that was rehearsal. That wasn't like you really won the World Series of Life. He is risen. risen That's better. I want us to submit and embrace that truth and see and be in awe of the cosmic faithfulness of God. Yes, to see our cosmic lostness, our slowness of heart to embrace, to have this message penetrate, but then to see the cosmic faithfulness of God. Look with me at the text. The words are printed in your bulletin, so look down at verse 1 and how the account begins. Mark says, when the Sabbath was passed, so in other words, they're allowed to go back to work, so to speak, it's Saturday evening, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now here I want to highlight, and I want us to see God's faithfulness, and especially God's trustworthiness, even in our slowness of understanding to believe. Look at this. Earlier on in the account of the crucifixion, Mark 15, verse 40, Mark made a point of saying that there were also women looking from a distance, so they were witnessing the resurrection, among whom, and he names three, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Salome. Tim Keller writes, he says, there is a strange redundancy in Mark's account For three times within a span of eight lines, Mark records the names of some of the women who witnessed these events, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Why does he do this? 
Why is this important? Why? Nothing's by accident in the scripture. So why this redundancy? Why this repeating? Why this emphasis? And he cites the biblical scholar Richard Bauckham, who writes that this is another way that Mark is letting us know that he is recording a historical event and not a legend. The repeated names of the women here are source citations, much like footnotes in a book. These women must have been alive at the time that Mark was writing, or he wouldn't have uh, cited their names so repeatedly. By including their names, Mark was saying to anyone who was reading or hearing this document, if you want to check out the truth of my story, talk to these women. They will cor- they're still alive, and they can corroborate everything I have said. Why would God put this? See, God understands how slow of heart we are to believe. God understands just how skeptical we can be. He gets how slow of heart, how dull we are to believe, and he doesn't say, oh, you bozos, get your act together. Why don't you finally believe? I've said it over and over again. Why don't you just believe what I'm telling you? No. What does he do? He comes down and he communicates with us, and he shows, he says, see these women, I'm going to have Mark who's recording this tell you, they were there, talk to them, they witnessed it, they saw it. This is real, this is true, this is historical. What implication does that have? This is trustworthy. You might be slow of heart. You might be resistant to change. I'm faithful. I am trustworthy. I am true. See, this implores us in a very practical way to ask ourselves the question, what kind of view of God do you have? Who do you think he is? Do you think he's just some distant bully who's basically waiting to get us if we don't live a good enough life? And On what are you basing your view? Are you basing your view of God on how you feel? Or on what the world says? If we do that, how do we know what is true? I mean, just think about this logically. If you base what you believe about God on what the world says, there's, what, 7 billion people in the world? That's 7 billion opinions? How in the world are you going to know what's true? You need to look at the Scripture and say, what does the Bible say about who God is? And here is God communicating the story, the account, the narrative with us. It's now Saturday evening, after the Sabbath. And the women go, and they get some spices to anoint Jesus' body. Now, they're not going expecting a resurrection. They're going thinking they're expecting a dead body. And then it says early the next morning, it's now Sunday morning, it says when the sun is just rising, they approach the tomb, they come to the tomb, and I love this, on their way they're having a conversation. Now remember this is three women, and they're having a conversation, and the text does tell us the account, the details are important, it says it was a very large stone. So they're having a conversation, you know, I could picture Mary saying to Salome, uh, are you going to move the stone? Uh, Mary, mother of James over here, this Mary, how about you? Have you been working out, doing a little CrossFit lately? You're ready to move this stone? Hey, we haven't talked about this. Who's going to move the stone? What if all three of us? Jesus talked a lot about community. Who's going to move the stone? And they go there, and I love this. I love this next line. It says, and approaching the tomb, they were alarmed. Now, in preparing the sermon, I read over the text. I read over it many, many times through the course of a week. I kid you not, every time I read this, I read this, I say, and they were alarmed. No kidding. 
It's kind of like, for real? Of course they're alarmed, because what happens? They approach the tomb, they're expecting this large stone. They see the stones rolled away. This very large stone is rolled back. And they approach the tomb, and what do they see? An angel. Mark records him as a young man, dressed in white, telling them not to be alarmed. I go, hmm, right. Sure, I won't be astonished at this. And they say, the one you are seeking, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was crucified, he is not here. He is risen. Go get the disciples, and we'll come back to this in a few minutes, and Peter. Get the disciples, and don't forget Peter, and meet him in Galilee. Friends, what do we learn from this? Oh, our cosmic slowness of heart. Now, why do I say this? Because throughout the second half of Mark's gospel, moving towards the point where Jesus had come to die, Jesus is going around constantly telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem. Guess who I'm going to meet there? I'm going to meet the leadership, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. They're not going to be my greatest fans. They're not going to be a part of the Jesus fan club. They're not going to like me a whole lot. They're going to reject me. They're going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to crucify me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. So just to give you one citation, one example, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Mark even says, And he said this plainly. So in other words, Mark records for us again in chapters 9 and 10. It's almost like he's going around saying, I will rise again, I will rise again, I will rise again. And guess what? They still don't get it. It still doesn't penetrate. It's still See, look at this. It's the third day now, and what does Mark tell us? There are no male disciples that go to check things out. Only some of the women go. And before we think the women were better than the men, the text doesn't say that. Because what it says is they at least were concerned and loved. They weren't going expecting a resurrection, but they at least kind of had that tender instinct to go, let's prepare his body, let's minister to his body. They were expecting to see a dead body. And as one commentator put it, and I love this, he says, nobody said, hey, it's the third day. Maybe we ought to go take a look at Jesus' tomb. Maybe we should have some curiosity. What can it hurt? It would only seem reasonable. Nobody said anything like that. It never even occurred to them. The angel in front of the empty tomb had to remind them, you will see him, oh, by the way, just as he told you. Kind of like, hello, do you get it? Just as he told you. He's told you over and over again. What does that teach us? We are slow of heart. And listen, if we think, oh, wait a second, I would have been different if I were there. I would have been curious. I would have gone, time out. Don't give yourself too much credit. Look at your life. How resistant are you to change? How resistant am I to change? I don't see anybody jumping up all the time and say, Pastor, here's the number one thing I want in the life of the church. I'm all over this. I want you to change things up. I want you to change things all the time. I very rarely get that email. We are resistant to change. We are slow of heart. We are dull of hearing. But aren't you glad that's not the end of the message? For fortunately, that's not all. Because look at the young man, the angel, what he said, and how he reveals the cosmic faithfulness of God. 
He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. I love how one writer puts it. He says, think about this, what the angel could have said to these alarmed, astonished, frightened women. You know, the angel could have very easily said, I want you to go tell those faithless, backstabbing cowards that Jesus might deign to see them if they come on their hands and knees groveling, and they better grovel. See, that's a message that they would have perfectly, that would have been perfectly warranted. We've seen what the disciples did to Jesus. But Jesus' message is completely different. His message to the disciples here, through the angel, through the one he has sent, his messenger is, I will see you. I'm going ahead of you. I'm waiting for you. I want you back. What, we have a record of what that meeting ahead of them, on that Sunday evening, was like it's told to us by Luke, in Luke chapter 24. Listen, Luke's account of this, he says, and as they were talking about these things, it's now Sunday night, we've had the disciples on the road to Emmaus, walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus, they've seen the the risen Jesus, now we come together and they're together and they're talking about these things, and it says, Jesus himself stood among them, and Jesus said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And so Jesus said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? How ordinary. Jesus in his resurrected body. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to apprehend, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third and on the third day rise from the dead. Can you imagine such a meeting? As we have, I provided it for you in our reflection this morning. Tim Keller so aptly puts it, Jesus had written just as he, risen just as he told them he would. And he writes, after a criminal does his time in jail and fully satisfies the sentence, the law has no more claim on him and he walks out free. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins. That was an infinite sentence, but he must have satisfied it fully because on Easter Sunday, he walked out free. The resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody could miss it. And of course, think about this. There's Jesus. The angel says there's one person in this story who really needed to hear this. Peter. Did you catch that when the angel was saying, he is not here, he is risen, he's going ahead of you, go tell the disciples, and Peter. Why did he specify Peter? Is it because somehow Peter is more important? Is it because of somehow the primacy of Peter? Absolutely not. 
It's because of Jesus' tender heart to restore the one who we knew was a broken and flawed sinner and who had just, hours before, denied him, invoking a curse upon himself, denying him three times. And Jesus, through the angel, is saying, I want all of my friends to come and especially get Peter. The cosmic faithfulness of God. Friends, what do we do with all of this? What do we do? One writer puts it, what if you believe, and I hope you do, that the resurrection is true? You believe that Jesus has died to save you. Men and women like Peter, broken, flawed sinners in need of acceptance, in need of validation, in need of restoration. He's died to save you, to redirect your eternal trajectory irrevocably toward God. You believe that God has accepted you for Jesus' sake, through Jesus' performance, through an act of supreme grace. You are part of the kingdom of God. What then? Does the resurrection mean anything for your life now? The answer is you better believe it. Think about this. The angel says to the women something that I don't want us to overlook. And that is the words, just as he told you. We've seen Jesus say, I'm going to die and rise again, I'm going to die and rise again, I'm going to die and rise again. But one of the reasons I pointed out the Luke passage is that when he opened their minds to understand the Scripture, what did he show them? That everything in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Now, what was that? That's the entirety of the Old Testament. That's the Bible as they had it at that time. He says, everything written in the Law of Moses and the prophets, and the psalms that was written about me must be fulfilled. When the angel says, just as he told you, what has God told us? One writer put it very well when he says, the prophets spoke about what God would do in the future. He would bring the kingdom of God, the absolute wholeness and well-being, physically, spiritually, Socially, economically, the kingdom of God, shalom, complete healing of all the relationships in the creation. We will be reconciled to God, to nature, to one another, and to ourselves. Just to give you one example, Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord will dwell upon whom? Who's that branch from the root of Jesse, the stump of Jesse? It is Jesus Christ. And then Isaiah goes on to say, he says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, And the wolf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, think about that. What is Isaiah looking forward to? He is looking forward to the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign and the reality of Jesus' lordship, of Jesus' kingship. What a tremendous picture that is 
of reconciliation at every level of existence. But now I want you to think about something. Has it happened yet? Has this happened yet? See, think about something. When Carl, a few minutes ago, dismissed the children for children's church, did he say, go outside and play at the hole of the cobra? We have a little children's church, children's church lesson for you today. Great lesson. We've gathered our cobras. Get your nursing children. I don't think that would go well at Spruce Creek Church, or any church for that matter, right? Has Isaiah's vision been fulfilled yet? Here's the tricky answer. Yes and no. And the tricky part of it is the no part is so easy to see. I just gave you one illustration, right? We wouldn't send our children to play over the hole of the cobra. How many wolves and lambs do you see laying down together? That'd be a great picture at the zoo, right? And lions, the meat eaters, you really see them chewing on, you know, straw like an ox? We don't see that. We look at the world and the world is filled with the opposite of reconciliation. People hating each other, people destroying each other. Tension, we see disease, we see injustice all over the place. The no part is easy. But friends, what does the resurrection mean? It means that victory, the kingdom, has been assured. We've won. The victory is not completed yet. It hasn't been totally fulfilled yet. But the reality of the kingdom of God has been launched. It's kind of like the end of history has been brought into the middle of history. And it's been inaugurated. Not yet completed. We've certainly not reached our destination. We have not reached the new heavens and the new earth. But, what did Paul write? Since then you have been raised with Christ. That's kingdom power right there. It is a reality in our lives now. Let me encourage us to picture it this way. We're all from Florida and what, 70, 80 miles to the south of us is uh, the Space Center where you often have rocket launches and space shuttle launches. Maybe the best way I can illustrate it is the kingdom of God is kind of like that rocket. And that rocket has been launched. It's been inaugurated. It's on its way to its destination, the moon or the space station or whatever it might be. But it hasn't yet reached its destination. But it has been launched. One of the things I love, I love when there's a space, and I don't go down there. I stand out in my front yard, and I kind of go, hey, look. There it is. Such is the power of that rocket. Such is the power of that space shuttle that you still hear the sonic boom. You still hear the noise. You still see the result. You feel the effects of the power of it. Such as it was with the resurrection, that the power is real. The kingdom has been launched And what does that mean for us? Even though it's been launched and it has not yet reached its destination, here's what it means. First of all, ask yourself the question, am I on that rocket? And here's what I mean by that. If the rocket is Jesus and his lordship and his kingdom, and it's headed towards the destination of the new heavens and new earth, the completion, the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, do I know I'm a Christian? Am I on that rocket? And here's what it means to be on that rocket. It is both the easiest and the hardest thing to do. Because what does it mean to get on the rocket? It means simply to get on. If you think of the rocket like Jesus Christ, what do you have to do? You leave everything behind. 
all your baggage, what you've done, both good and bad. You leave your performance, you leave your achievements, you leave your works, you leave it all behind, and you simply get on the rocket. And what do you do to produce that rocket launching? Absolutely nothing. God may be calling you today to get on the rocket. Maybe you have never gotten on the rocket, and he's calling you, get on that rocket. Because that's the only thing that is heading towards the destination of the new heavens and the new earth. Are you on the rocket? And my Christian friends, if you're on the rocket, you are now new heavens and new earth people. That's what defines you. You are a citizen of heaven. Are you still living an earthbound life? Are you still living a life that is defined more by the values of the earth? Are you living a life that's defined by values of unbelief and skepticism and cynicism? Or are you living a life that is defined by the values of the kingdom? Values like love to God and to neighbor. Values like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are you simply bearing witness to, you're on the rocket, you haven't reached your destination, and it, life, it can get bumpy. Life on that rocket can get bumpy. But are you bearing witness? Are you reflecting the values that you're a kingdom person? You're not an earthbound person. Isn't that what Paul meant when he said, since then we have been raised with Christ, let us set our minds on things above, not on things on earth. For your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, that's what it means to be on the rocket. Christ is your life. When he appears, you will appear with him in glory. That's the victory parade. The victory is assured. What do you think? He is risen. It changes everything. Father, I pray that now might be the day of salvation for some of us. And Father, for those of us who have gotten on the rocket, so to speak, and we've experienced initial salvation, continue to deliver us and save us from our earthbound ways. And not in a way that is pressure-filled, but in a way that reflects the resurrection, reflects the reality that the victory has been won. So we do it with joy, we do it relaxing, we do it celebrating, but that our lives would bear witness to a new citizenry, a new set of values. We bear witness, Jesus, to your life. Father, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the fact that he is seated at the right hand in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.